because I am one person with way too many instruments moving through the world in a Honda Civic. And because I'm a freelancer, I don't always have the luxury of sitting at the table and having multiple meetings and saying, what is our DEI plan? What is, you know, I'm very much on the ground in rooms where students are selecting their instruments for the first time. Welcome to Careers in Crescendo, Lessons for Musicians. I'm your host, Jeff Dunn. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Katie Hickey, a 2007 alum from the Eastman School of Music and a recipient of the Catherine Feline Schaus Arts Leadership Certificate of Achievement. Katie is an educator and freelance trombonist in Chicago and the founder of Brass Beyond Binaries. In this episode, you'll hear her discuss her journey as a musician establishing her career, as well as the impetus and experience creating a new performing arts organization. Brass Beyond Binaries held their first program in the summer of 2023, the Windy City Trombone Retreat, to fulfill their mission of empowering women and gender-expansive musicians through workshops and performances. I hope many listeners will learn from our conversation, get involved, and continue to build strong communities in our profession. Enjoy! But Katie, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Can you just share with us um, a little bit of your story then? What happened after you graduated and what ultimately led you to Chicago? So I'm a Chicago area native. Um, I grew up playing trombone, mostly self-taught, but participating in a lot of public school band programs. Um, There's an excellent jazz camp in the Midwest. It's called Birch Creek. And I was a participant at Birch Creek for four summers, met a lot of the Eastman jazz faculty. That was sort of my connection to auditioning and coming out to Rochester. Um, The minute that I arrived on campus, I studied with Mark Kellogg and Mark Kellogg said, you need to learn how to play the trombone. So I immediately started focusing on classical music for the first time, Uh, double majored all the way through school in both classical and jazz performance, added the arts leadership program as a junior, was an intern at the Rochester Philharmonic in the artistic operations department. Um, and graduated in 2007 with the intent of becoming an orchestra player. So the first place I went was Rice University for my master's. I'm one of the last students of the late David Waters. I thought I was going to perfect my excerpts and go win my orchestra job. And what turns out happening was I became, I fell in love with teaching. Um, I had a studio of like 18 middle school students. Um, I started freelancing in the salsa and the theater scenes a lot more, also in the church world. Um, and sort of survived Houston as a young freelancer. Um, I took one of the first orchestral opportunities that came my way after I graduated, which was Orquesta Sinfónica Sinaloa de las Artes in Sinaloa, Mexico. And so I had a contract with a Mexican orchestra. Um, The next job I won was a brass quintet based out of Western Canada, the Foothills Brass. So I went on tour with them for a little bit. Um, And then when Foothills went part-time, I agreed to be a college professor at SIU Carbondale. I took a full-time term lecturer appointment. And then there was this year where I was teaching college in rural Southern Illinois, um, still kind of on tour with my brass quintet. And I was 26 and trying to figure out what to do with all of these pieces. Do I go back and get the doctorate? Um, What's going to happen with this brand new car I bought that already has like 25,000 miles on it? And everything just seemed to be really disjunct pieces that were in fact pointing away from who I was artistically. I say that it's my good luck in retrospect that Carbondale laid me off 
during early July in 2012. And so kind of begrudgingly, in order to collect unemployment money, I had to land back here in Chicago in order to sort of figure out my next steps. So if that was 2012, there were a few years where I was taking every audition that came my way. I really prioritized taking teaching work to pay the bills, especially because even though I'm not a native, I never studied here. I don't really have a teacher here. Um, most of my connections at the time were connections outside of the Midwest. So I built a teaching studio at a local high school. Eventually I picked up a very part-time college job at Loyola University. And eventually I gained a job at a private school that paid enough that I could make my rent. So establishing my freelance footing in a new town really meant, okay, what is my day job going to look like? And how can I hustle that and just let people get to know me more organically? Um, I think a lot of times when people move to a major freelancing city for the first time, they use words like break in or like, hey, how can I make the scene? And a lot of that making the scene is just being around for enough years that people are convinced you're not going to leave again. Especially one of the projects I did when I was underemployed was I started hanging out with some Latin American trombone friends I'd made at a summer festival in college. And I had a chance to participate at some really cool workshops in places like Argentina, Costa Rica, Uruguay, and I founded a workshop with a good friend of mine in Panama. So the social media presence of that made it look like I was kind of always gone, which I've now learned is maybe not the best first step to take if you want a freelance performing career in a major city. Fast forward to coming out of the pandemic in 2021, I started getting some union theater calls for work that were longer contracts, paid a lot more, but were also a lot more intense. So one of the greatest challenges I've had in the last two years or so is reshaping this portfolio career to be a better balance between my teaching life and my performing life so that rather than about 80 to 90% teaching income and like 10 to 15 performing, um, which is where I was at for the first three to five years, now I'm really aiming for 50-50 across the board. And that is taking a lot of saying no. And that's also taking a lot of setting the teaching boundaries where they go. Absolutely. I can definitely understand from the musician perspective that we want to find that right balance for us. And hey, we're all different and we, we all need to make that happen. Um, but I also really appreciate that you mentioned the network aspect of this, especially for those that are in that freelance scene and that you wanted to grow organically. I think for a lot of us, that word networking is really scary and it feels a little unsavory and that we have to do some things that might be disingenuous. But my feeling is always that at its core, networking is very real and human and personal and uh, those relationships are very, um, like you say, organic, but also, you know, very genuine. Would you agree with that too? Yeah. And I, one of the most frustrating things now that I'm a college teacher working with people who are asking me this question from the other side is the fact that it takes almost the exact amount of time that some of my mentors and some of the people that I really looked up to said, it takes 10 years and not even COVID adjusted, but saying, Dang it, they were correct. <laughs> like, does this really reflect at all on my ability to play the instrument? Okay, maybe a little bit. But that the amount of time that they say and the way that the breaks tend to fall. I also think a large part of that was prioritizing the teaching work meant that I wasn't in the same freelance scene all the time. I did visit the regional orchestra scene for a year or two. I was subbing in those groups, but I found that being gone, by that I mean being out of state, for three or four days a week wasn't a thing that I wanted for my own life. So I think in some ways having to grow in multiple scenes may have even extended my timeline a little bit more. 
than somebody who is just purely looking to play one style of music or connect with one of our many different scenes we have here. And certainly a testament to, to a, a major city that can sustain all those freelancers because there are different scenes. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you'd certainly needed to uh, prioritize your values and find the right places for you to be. Mm-hmm. And I want to continue on those values because you are the founder of Brass Beyond Binaries. I'd like to hear you speak a little bit about what was the impetus and the ideas behind starting that and tell us a little bit more about the program. So I've been affiliated with the Eastman Summer Trombone Workshop since about three months after I graduated. Um, The first time that I was a teaching assistant for that workshop was in 2007. And as I mentioned, I've been doing a lot of work with Latin American Trombone Festivals. We have a good friend and colleague who is the current director of the ITF. Um, So this concept of trombone workshop or festival is one I think that has continued to grow as trombone players who love to hang out with each other say, how can we make an excuse to make this happen more frequently? Um, So there's this wealth of programming right now in the summer festival workshop space for instrument specific intensive camps. And the bulk of this programming focuses on the job market and focuses on orchestral repertoire and focuses on not necessarily a competitive slant, but some kind of how can we train you in this audition success mentality? Now, this is, I don't have an exact number, but if this is the bulk of that, um, it also focuses on really, really training the individual. So the current crop of undergraduate trombone students are people who largely identify as cis and male. Um, Cisgender meaning um, you identify as the gender you were born on in your body, um, and in this case, identifying with the male gender. So if you're looking at the participant makeup of most of these workshops, they're going to be also largely a community of that. Maybe not entirely, and I think our demographics are changing very quickly, um, but that is the bulk of the population who these workshops are serving. So as somebody who has been in trombone teaching land for a long time, a lot of younger students started to reach out to me. There was a mentoring program through the International Women's Brass Conference that I participated in, and I started meeting more and more people who don't necessarily identify in the same way. Um, Maybe they were women, maybe they were gender expansive, meaning that they had a term like gender non-conforming, gender non-binary. There's a whole umbrella of language that we're still learning how to use there. Um, But they felt like this um, space in the orchestral world, or even just this space in some of these larger camps, um, made it difficult for them to find each other. So Brass Beyond Binaries is the soon-to-be NFP, soon-to-be nonprofit, large umbrella in which we can create affinity spaces, so spaces for people to connect, um, spaces for people to develop professionally, and then also spaces for us to have concerts, have different kinds of conversations, and just really allow there to be a clear understanding of how can we support, how can we elevate these these voices because it benefits everybody. So the term Brass Beyond Binaries was created by ChatGPT. Um, I had a conversation with Samantha Lane at SC Shires, and I said, well, my first draft idea for a name for this is not Dude Camp, and I absolutely cannot name it that. Um, But that was sort of this idea of creating an affinity space. Well, I don't want to other anybody. Well, I don't want to leave anybody out. Where does that go? Um, And Sam said, use ChatGPT. And it was like, this sounds like cheating. So thank you to ChatGPT. I think it was version three for creating the name for my nonprofit. 
Um, and then from there, because this is meant to be an umbrella with multiple opportunities to reach different populations, I said, I need a trombone camp name. And so ChatGPT came up with the Windy City Trombone Retreat, which is a little wordy. Um, that was the name that we went with this year. I don't know if that is the name that will stick, um, but I wanted to make sure that our trombone specific workshop had its own flagship name. And that helps me um, distinguish and separate between the different activities I'm hoping to do. So this all started in January of 2023 at the same time as I was in the process of quitting a job. Um, I found that anytime that I was getting really frustrated with like outgoing, <laughs> outgoing responsibilities and outgoing politics, um, I could channel a lot of my energy into the new project. And so that they kind of dovetailed instead of me just saying, I'm done with this thing. Here's this new thing and trying to create like clear and healthy boundaries and separation because that so rarely happens in the freelance world. Usually you're still hanging out with one idea as you're trying to found the next one. So fast forward to now, it's September in 2023. Um, I, I have a long to-do list. And so the next on the list is to have a conversation with a lawyer about what it actually means to write articles of incorporation and do a lot of this nonprofit founding stuff that I probably should have paid more attention in ALP about because it's a very, very, very steep learning curve. So that's kind of the genesis of Brass Beyond Binaries and where we're at right now. Wow. You know, I, I love hearing that you use chat GPT and that that is definitely a topic we could dive into at another date and time. And I encourage our listeners to stay tuned because, um, you know, we'll, we'll have more from the IML to share on that front uh, in, in you know coming times. Um, but, you know, first here, I'm going to just read the mission statement for Brass Beyond Binaries, and that's Brass Beyond Binaries seeks to build community through workshops and performance centering women and gender expansive brass musicians. And what I really appreciate your, your sharing here is that there's a real deliberate um, focus here on the community aspect and musicians being together rather than, as you state, a lot of our instructional opportunities are very focused on the individual. Um, could you just share maybe a little bit about your experience as a working musician, as a freelance musician, but why that focus is meaningful for you? So one of the first really inclusive community-based trauma workshops that I had a chance to attend was in 2014, I kind of invited myself, thanks Nick Finzer for connecting me to Ruben Carugi, um, to the Tromonanza Festival, which is in Santa Fe, Argentina. And there I witnessed a community that included its nine-year-old beginners with some of the most famous orchestral players in the world. They focused on mass Tromon choirs that were led by um, Irv Wagner, the late Irv Wagner, who we owe such a great debt to in our community. Um, and everything was a hang. Every single event, every single warm up, every single masterclass was focused on, hey, how can I learn from you and how can I understand who you are? Um, I didn't know it at the time when I offered to go down, but I was the first woman to be a professor at that festival. And what's been fascinating is I've been back, I took um, Professor Kellogg in 2017 and we have our colleague Chris Van Hoff went this year. Um, the community of women who is at that festival has been growing very intentionally because they said, oh, this is another opportunity for us to expand our mission. So if Trombonanza is kind of the model of music learning as celebration, as party, I took that and said, well, how can I do little bits of this at our much smaller festival in Panama? How can I do little bits of this within my own very spread out 
geographically a teaching studio. I have a lot of different locations and students. Um, and it's really been my mission since moving to town to say, all right, how can I be almost golden retrieval levels of friendly with anybody who moves in? while still maintaining boundaries. Um, it can be difficult sometimes, I think, for people, the longer that you become a freelancer in the scene, they don't really know how to approach you when looking for work. <laughs> and so setting it where it went, um, making sure that everybody felt welcome in the concert spaces. This was another thing. Talking about how these kinds of affinity workshops that are meant to really empower and uplift and help a specific group of people professionally develop benefit everyone. So making the concert spaces feel a little bit more welcoming for everyone meant seeking out some unusual and different venues, maybe venues that weren't traditionally used as professional musician spaces in town. So it started with Trombonanza. I've had some really positive experiences here in Chicago building that community and then came to talking to the students. It was about, okay, how can we make this something that really bridges what you're already doing? Um, when we had our Windy City Trombone Retreat, our community, I think our youngest person was 13 and then our oldest person was 24. And something about having a room that was intergenerational like that. Um, Eastman Summer Trombone Institute also does this where they have a really wide age range. And something I appreciate about that is it really changes the conversation towards how can we teach ourselves best? Like the pedagogy conversation is so inherent. And I think it really prevents any kind of competitive nature from sneaking in. So the, the age range thing, the concerts and celebrations thing, I really think allowing ourselves to realize that trombone is goofy <laughs> and lead with that um, just makes it much easier to have a conversation then, hey, man, what kind of mouthpiece do you play? Yeah, you know, there's so there's so much in there to unpack. And I I, I certainly can um, say that the there's a clear intent and vision here that is different from a lot of other programs. And it's very common, of course, in our country where other programs might be auditioned and we're looking for a specific group of people that play at a certain level. And yes, they might ha have very similar ages and, you know, we're all going to play our excerpts together. Um, and it sounds like there's a, there's a clear difference here. And it's another one of the challenges I have as a founder is, so last summer was um, invite only, essentially. I invited people that I'd met from my last three years of teaching both COVID era clinics and also um, more recent mentoring opportunities. So even though some people I was meeting for the first time, there were no total strangers. And another thing on my to-do list is to post in the Trombone Professors Facebook group about, hi folks, what do you think an application to a program like this should look like? Because traditionally, our applications have a playing element and a writing element, and what are the qualifications for something like this going forward so that I can really reach, I don't even use the term best, but I can spread the widest net and make sure that everybody or as many different people as possible have access to the kind of programming that I'm trying to create. So that's on the to-do list after talking to the lawyer for sure. Yeah, and and I, I hope we can, we can certainly... Uh... Have you back some time and talk about that? Because I'm sure that brings into uh, questions about equity and inclusion and how do we cast that wide net? And uh, I know we'll all be very eager to to figure out what you learned through through going through that. I want to come back to your comment about being the only female trombone faculty in the year 2014. I think a lot of us like to pretend or imagine that our world was moving in the right direction and we were all making good strides in in uh, some of those areas. And I think in the last couple of years, there were certainly lot, lots of large reckoning to recognize that was not the case and that there's still plenty of work to be done. 
Um, and I, one of the things I always think about from my vantage point, and um, obviously that this problem exists in many fields, but especially in the low brass world, it is absolutely a fair criticism that it is very male dominated and very white male dominated. Um, could you just share, if you're willing, any experiences that you had as um, a female identifying persons in the trombone world that certainly were maybe uh, formative or, or shaped your experience as a musician? So what's interesting to me now, having been a student at Eastman in the early mid 2000s, having been on the road with a touring group, you know, been in a bunch of different parts of at least instrumental music scene, right? We live in such a tiny slice of the pie. There are some indicators for me of what feels like success and what motivates me to keep working. Um, one of the indicators that tells me I need to keep working is if somebody sends me a note through my contact form or like slides into my DMs and says, hey, my daughter heard you at this festival or my daughter saw you at this thing, like thank you for being in that band. Um, and usually it's, it's happened three or four times where it's been a big band and I've been the only woman on stage. Um, so I'm still trying to figure out the wording for this, but some kind of conversation about how can we really prioritize gender diversity and equity and our programming for academic jazz festivals. That's a season that's coming up next winter, um, making sure that we're more conscientious of the image we're presenting when we do have that education funding to do so. So that's an indicator that I keep seeing, saying like, okay, it's not just about the numbers, it's about that modeling back towards younger students. Uh, another indicator I see is one of the greatest parts about being at Eastman was being the younger sibling to Liza Malamut, who's now, she's an incredible sackbut player, historical performance icon. She teaches at Indiana, and we are fortunate enough to be living in the same city for the first time in our professional lives. It's a really beautiful happenstance because we both bounced around so much professionally. So I had a very clear role model, and I had somebody to ask questions of, hey, is this normal when somebody's talking about me or how I play or like, hey, is this a reflection on my own ability or is somebody insecure and projecting it on me? When you are two out of a studio of 26, it's easy for that to happen. So that was my own Eastman experience. My professors always treated me like one of the other students in such that they gave me the same expectations. And at the same time, they said, hey, you're the first one to come through in a while. The door is open if something is messed up. So I felt like Eastman did a really good job understanding that I needed similar support. I didn't need to have myself singled out every single week in studio class, but at the same time needed to learn to use my language to talk about these sorts of things. Something I do now, and I teach a college lecture class and we have one of those timers. And if it's been 10 or 15 minutes since a woman has talked in my class, the timer goes off. Just, I'm, I'm trying to really be, because this is the way that I am as a teacher, as pragmatic as possible in the environments that I inhabit, because I am one person with way too many instruments moving through the world in a Honda Civic. And because I'm a freelancer, I don't always have the luxury of sitting at the table and having multiple meetings and saying, what is our DEI plan? What is, you know, I'm very much on the ground in rooms where students are selecting their instruments for the first time. And you still hear that that's a girl's instrument, that's a boy's instrument. Um, it's tired and true, and I don't think it's going away anytime soon. But that direct relationship to knowing somebody who does it, to modeling it, to allowing people 
to switch their opinions too. Um, teaching students, like I said, I used to teach more middle schoolers. Um, and that feeling of knowing somebody when they're 13 and then knowing them when they're 18 as an educator is just wild. Even 18 to 22 year olds, um, allowing them to come in with the terrible opinions and just kind of gently poke at them for a little while. Those have all been really helpful things. Um, I don't like to waste space and time for people that aren't willing to have a conversation with me. It's no longer useful. I'm too busy. <laughs> and there are too many people who are younger than me that are reaching out and saying, hey, can I talk to you about this cool idea I have? So I think in this current space of being 38, almost 39, being 15 years away from Gibbs Street, the thing that I'm most invested in is all of this recent generation's good ideas and helping them learn to grow in shape. And that makes me feel like I'm about a million years old, but it really is a lot more invigorating than saying, okay, how can I go break into this scene that is still super male dominated? Or like, why am I not getting hired for this thing? Like, there are so many reasons and some of them may be because it's harder to reach across your natural friendship boundaries. A lot of what we do is contractor and recommending a friend, um, especially in the freelance world. And I think it's changing slowly and Chicago is probably even more prehistoric than some other places with that. But just by being here, I'm staying and I'm complicating the conversation a little bit further. And there are more people following me and that's how I know we're doing the right thing. Listeners will remember that we had uh, Liza and uh, Ben David Arrington on the program last season uh, chatting about Incantara and their, their group. So I encourage everyone to go back and find that episode and take a listen as well. Do you have a musical idea that you'd like to make a reality? The IML Mentorship Grant provides students with opportunities to receive funding and mentorship to encourage new thinking and the development of innovative ideas in music. Launch your idea with the IML. So in terms of making all of this happen, what were some of the challenges that you faced uh, and how did you overcome them to make the Windy City Trombone Retreat a reality last summer? So... Being a freelancer and being somebody who was in an earlier incarnation of ALP, who had a lot of professional successes and then also was laid off multiple times in her 20s, um, I have sort of developed the reputation as a visionary talker. Like, I am full of good ideas. And some of those good ideas have been successful. Plenty of them have been unsuccessful. And it's very easy to sit and say, hey, this would be cool. Um, the execution side is where I still continue to struggle. And luckily enough for me, um, during 2020, when we were all shut down, and we were trying to figure out a way to fund a lot of these projects and stay afloat. I had a relative offer me a small seed grant and said, hey, I need this to go to the music education projects you care about. So somebody handed me money and said, go figure out the best use of this. And then fast forward a couple summers, I was using it to scholarship um, a couple of folks into a few trombone programs. So I said, hey, small amount of money, I can help a couple of people attend the workshops where I'm currently on faculty. Um, but what I noticed is that I was using this amount of money to benefit three or four people. So in 2023, I said, what if I started my own camp? Terrifying. So I, the first challenge was just saying, man, I am going to succeed or fail with this. 
and realizing that this will be my own thing and that there's a much greater sense of accountability than being a part of a freelance project or a part of a band or especially a part of a theater show, right? Where it's very easy to kind of distance your own sense of self-worth from it. So it's going beyond the visionary talker stage. Having someone else give you money and say, this is the deadline is a great kick in the pants for that. Um, other challenges I had coming up with the framing as we discussed for who is welcome and how. I think really specifying who we wanted in the space. Another challenge was finding the time of the summer that we were able to work at it. Um, I did last summer, I taught at an orchestra camp in upstate New York for a little bit. Um, I still was on the faculty of the Eastman Summer Terminal Institute. I had some other things going on um, with family commitments. So finding a time that both didn't block the other camps and also worked for me ended up being the second week of August. <laughs> So I taught Eastman camp and then I ran my own camp, 13 days of trombone camp in a row. Um, and then finding additional funding sources to make this idea big enough that it would actually run. So that meant reaching out to Shires, gave me a little bit of money. Liza reached out to her home board at the Newberry concert and they were the first people to really say, um, they didn't give us a matching grant, but they gave us almost a matching grant. And so now that I had someone else's money, not just the person that I know, um, I had somebody else's money to play with. It really became a reality. I started inviting, there was the first round of email invites to folks that I already had in mind. And I had about 50% of those people say, yes, great, I'd love to come. And then it was, okay, so now that you're coming, what do we do? And what is important to share? And so I've never taken a conducting class. I'm sorry, Mark Davis Scatterday, I need to reach out for conducting lessons. <laughs> um, but it became really apparent that if we're not doing orchestral excerpts, some kind of community ensemble is really important. And so I had to pick choir repertoire. I had to learn how to do some very basic stuff to get that choir going. Um, I had to overcome a lot of, hey, so what is this gonna be? Hey, so is it an orchestra camp? Hey, a lot of people asking questions and being really well-meaning saying, so you're going to do a trombone camp. <laughs> like, don't we have too many of those already? So I think in some ways, the glut that already exists in our space of programming and opportunities was like my biggest barrier. You've been a part of so many different programs in the past. Can you tell us a little bit about the vibe and atmosphere at the trombone retreat? Did you find that to be intentionally different from other programs? So... One of the most surprising elements to our week, and when I say week, we did four days of programming with most folks arriving on Monday night. Our final concert was on Friday afternoon. Super intense week. Um, we had our first trombone choir read-through session fairly early on our first day. I wanted to make sure that we started by playing to establish one of the commonalities that really brought us together. And we finished reading and there was just silence in the room. And I've never been in a trombone festival environment where there's silence after you play. And it happened a few times with some of our guest presenters and just some of the transition times moving from activity to activity where there was this real peace settling in the room. And on day three, I sort of asked this, some of the older graduate students, I said, why do you think this is happening? And they said, well, A, you found some introverts and they feel safe being introverts. And then B, they said, nobody's trying to perform their identity right now. And so one of the hallmarks of being in a safe space is that silence. 
So that was probably the most distinguishing feature to how we moved through our week together was just allowing people to take time to express their thoughts, allowing people to sit and reflect upon what's going on and really be themselves in the space, meaning that they didn't have to be above and beyond anything in order to succeed. Tell us a little bit more about the week schedule then. What were some of the, the activities that you did? So just very functionally, as I mentioned, I was coming from the Eastman Summer Trombone Institute, so I knew I needed to build in a day or two to sleep. And I wanted to make sure that, especially for our college um, students who were coming from out of town, that their work schedules were taken into consideration. And my work schedule as somebody who performs on the weekends was taken into consideration. So our programming started on a Tuesday. We ended with a Friday afternoon closing concert in a park nearby. Um, we rented a production studio from 10 to 3, and that was usually our group warm-up, our trombone choir rehearsal. We had at least one special topic presenter each day. Um, on the third day, so we started on a Tuesday, on the third day we did visit a church space in suburban Evanston because it has amazing acoustics, and we were fortunate enough that the Newberry concert um, provided Liza and provided a sackbut petting zoo. So I wanted to make sure that the instrument that requires a really excellent acoustic to understand had a really nice big church space to play. And then also I just wanted to get a change of scenery because our production studio had AV, it had an isolation booth that served as a practice room, it had gender neutral restrooms, it had a back patio if you wanted to get away from all the trombone sound, it had a kitchen for when we had lunch catered in. Um, but it was probably the smallest space that I would consider having 15 trombonists play in. So we found that sweet spot. And I originally found that space is called Foxhole Creative because I played a rehearsal there in February. So that was our day-to-day -day kind of home base. Um, some of the venues that we used, we used a jewelry studio um, that is run by the partner of a brass band colleague of mine. And she calls it Estina Chicago. So it's usually a DJ night space, but that was our jazz night space. Um, we also played outdoors in one of Chicago's major parks. We played at Wells Park for our closing concert. There is a covered wrought iron early 20th century gazebo um, that helps to both center the sound because it's covered. Um, it was mostly rain friendly. We were lucky it didn't rain. And it also provided for really great photos because we invited a photographer to come to our last day. Now with the park space, I did reach out to both the Neighborhood Advisory Council and the Chicago Park District saying, hey, what kind of permitting do I need to do this? And nobody ever responded. So that was definitely us just coming with our trombone cases to the park and me saying, hey, I hope this is cool. And the good news was it was fine. Um, but that was the thing that I was most anxious for also throughout the week is saying everything else I booked, I have a real clear understanding and relationship with the owners what would happen if we played in the park? And the good news is it sounds great. So. Well, and I'm sure anyone uh, like yourself and has, has run programs like this would always say, there's always something about the week that gives you anxiety and uh, makes you a little on edge until it's finally over. Tell us a little bit about the feedback from the participants this summer. What were some of the things that you learned from them? So we have articles that are being submitted to the Historical Brass Society and also the um, International Women's Brass Conference. And so I was lucky enough that some of the participants sent literal blurbs about how they felt welcome and included. Um, some of the guest presenters that we had during the week, we had a personal trainer who has a degree from Northwestern in trombone performance. 
we had the current education coordinator of Chicago Sinfonietta, Monica Benson, come in to talk about freelance career building. Um, we had Liza come in and talk about sack butts. We had an educators panel. We talked about what it's like to run a teaching studio. So really a lot of the workshops were where the students were giving feedback of, this is the information that I've always wanted to know and never had the chance to ask questions. And I should mention that our good friend and colleague Priscilla Ewan was gracious enough to drive all the way from Rochester and be a facilitator and administrator for a few days. So having Priscilla, the non-trombonist who is around trombonists all day, um, to say, giving feedback and saying, this is what we need. Um, we've never had a chance to have this conversation in a room where everybody else is in the same space of learning how to use their voice. Um, that was a lot of the feedback. And then most of the feedback is, when are we going to do this again? I want to come back. And there's both, it, it's a very ego satisfying thing to hear. And then it's the great challenge of, well, if I want to build this out, how do I keep inviting new people in? Right? I can't just have the same team of folks coming back summer after summer. And realistically, that won't happen. But what does this look like as a community going forward? And so I've been reaching out to especially some of the older college students and saying, hey, can you help me write this article? Hey, I don't want to ask you to do unpaid work. like, But if you feel positive speaking out on behalf of this organization to these people, um, how can we, going back to this, how can we build this community together? Um, what does a job for you in this organization eventually look like? So that maybe you're no longer a student, but you're able to take this concept and build it out in your own home community. So that was really the most rewarding thing was having them say, oh, I could do this. Like I can run a brass day for all of my female and gender expansive students in Maryland or wherever it happens to be. So do you imagine a lot of those kinds of opportunities being the next stage for Brass Beyond Binaries of having essentially satellite events happening across uh, all these different places? So in the, the learning to set boundaries as a freelancer, um, one of the things that is my hope for this year. So continuing to grow this idea and this thought organically, um, making sure that we have a clear sense of what's happening for every single event that we try to run. The only event that I'm trying to run between now and next summer's trombone camp is some kind of local workshop for 18 and under folks here in Chicago. And having that be in the winter, because just very practically, I'm about to embark upon about a hundred theater shows in the span of 15 weeks. And so that, on top of my own teaching schedule, means I won't have time. I'm envisioning this to be more of a seasonal endeavor, um, making sure that we can both start from the very beginning of people's performing careers and then having the four-day camp really be the flagship here in Chicago in an open and welcoming community. And then if this is successful for another two summers, I think being able to repeat the model successfully locally and then being able to demonstrate the model to somebody who's another mid-career freelancer. And I have a few folks I'm talking to that are in that space. That's what feels like success. Something else that feels like success might be expanding beyond my own instrument. So looking to include tuba players, looking to include trumpet players. And we have some excellent folks here in Chicago um, who are willing to help out. They would just love to not be in charge. <laughs> well, Katie, I so appreciate you sharing your story and, and uh, you know your time with us today. As I asked all of our alumni on the program, do you have a favorite memory of your time at Eastman that you'd be willing to share? So in the mid-2000s, let's see. 
When I was in the Eastman Wind Ensemble, um, the doctoral teaching assistant at the time is a man named Martin Segelke, Dr. Segelke, who some people have run into at places like San Francisco State. I think he taught for a minute at Illinois State as well. Um, and Martin was a fantastic doctoral teaching assistant. And he happened to be conducting us on one of the most serious programs I played, not like Music for Prague 1968, but um, we played this Messian piece about expecting the resurrection. So like really like uplifting, heartwarming stuff when it's, I think it was January or February in Rochester. And you're just like, why, why are we getting this existential on a Thursday night to a nearly empty Eastman Theater? So we're playing this piece, we're playing as loud as we can. There's that like wall of percussion immediately behind the trombone roll. And we're getting to this 10 second long, right? Hold the last fermata and everything's going and everything's going. And Martin gives this beautiful cutoff and you just hear And then a piece of a mallet rolls all the way. It took like 15 seconds to the front of the stage. And you can see this poor doctoral student be like, what went wrong? What did I do? What did I do? What did I do? And he just reaches down and he picks it up and he shows it to the audience. And then he takes a bow and the entire Eastman Wind Ensemble busts out laughing on stage. <laughs> and I just remember that juxtaposition of big fancy building, big fancy piece, something ridiculous happening sort of encapsulates a lot of my undergraduate experience. And that idea of learning to respect what we're doing and treat it with great care and beauty and then also never take yourself too seriously because an instrument might legitimately break on stage. That is good advice for all of us because there's always something that happens in live performance and it's great when you can just laugh at it. Especially in ET, yeah. Yes, yes. Well, Katie, thank you again for sharing your time and we look forward to hearing much more about Brass Beyond Binaries in the future. Thank you so much. Today's episode of Careers in Crescendo, Lessons for Musicians, was produced by Kelly Judson. The music was written and produced by Will Jay, and the artwork designed by Joyce Sang. As always, if you have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us via our website at iml.esm.rochester. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues and leave us a review on your preferred streaming platform. This podcast is a production of the Institute for Music Leadership at the Eastman School of Music. The views expressed in the podcast are the interviewees and do not represent the Eastman School of Music or the Institute for Music Leadership. From the IML, I'm Jeff Dunn. See you next time.